The age of personalised medicine has arrived with Bioceuticals Clinical Services DNA testing. Advances in genetic testing mean that we can address an individual's health needs according to their unique genetic profile. For more information, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today all the way from sunny Launceston in Tasmania, I say that with a wry smile, is Dr. Gary Fetke, who's a Tasmanian orthopaedic surgeon with a long-standing interest in the preventative aspects of health outcomes and particularly before surgery. He's always and always has been a loud advocate for public health and prevention. As a cancer survivor, he saw the benefits of reducing sugar and processed carbohydrates in his own health and started to share the information in broad principles with his patients. His open nutritional advice on healthy eating has come under investigation by APRA after anonymous vexatious notifications by dietitians. His case became public last year and partly after his involvement in the Senate inquiry into the medical complaints process in Australia that highlighted the ARPA process. Welcome to FX Medicine, Dr Gary Fetke, how are you? Good morning, Andrew. And this is quite sunny down here. <laughs> well, it's not in Sydney. <laughs> well, no, that's because we can actually see the see the climate out there rather than having to look through the fog. <laughs> the smog, yeah. Well, I'm being kind. <laughs> Now, Gary, I've first got to go back. You've had a long-standing interest in health. So tell me where your interest in medicine began, because sometimes medicine and health aren't always walking hand in hand. And I, I guess I say that from a cynical perspective. Um, but tell me about your beginnings. Well, it really probably goes back to the, um, when I was 16 when my mother died from cancer. So I had a pretty raw um, finish to high school in mm. And uh, she died of an unknown cancer. Um, she was a smoker. And um, I was a fat kid. So the combination of that and my struggle with my own weight, and I was on diets from the age of eight, meant that uh, I ended up down, going down that path of uh, medicine. Oh. Um, I was doing a lot of sport, um, so I did lose that weight as a teenager. And uh, the combination of uh, sport... Uh, and medicine ended up traveling the path of orthopedic surgery. So I've been an orthopedic surgeon now for um, 26 years. Yeah. And a major component of that's been, you know, let's look at the prevention aspect rather than actually just treating the outcomes. Uh, the return on investment, uh, if once you start treating patients, particularly in the hospital environment, is effectively zero. Um, you may get a few dollars in return in uh, research, but the, you'll get the biggest return on investment for prevention. Right. So 25 years ago, um, I was one of the first surgeons in Australia to not operate on patients if they were smoking. Oh, really? Um, and I used to give a paper where this, uh, called Where There's Smoke, There's Fire. Uh, literally, you know, when you start looking for the research and you're looking for that uh, evidence that smoking was bad for you and quite clearly, you know, on every um, you know uh, cigarette um, packet nowadays, and the science is quite clearly 
uh, in that situation that smoking is bad for you. And if you look back, it was there 30 years ago. So the same thing goes with uh, obesity. So um, maybe 15, 17 years ago, I I stopped uh, or significantly avoided doing joint replacement on patients that were too heavy. And for the same reason, the results of joint replacement are not as good if you uh, are too heavy. It's blatantly obvious that patients don't recover as well. They have more complications and the procedures and interventions aren't going to last as long. And I got challenged on that one as well, and uh, as well as the smoking issue and presented papers, um, again, uh, all related to that. But if you tell people to stop smoking and you tell them to lose weight, um, the big problem in the medical profession is we just tell them. Uh, and there's a big difference between telling a patient and then all providing them with the tools sure. to actually mm. give them that advice. So the flow on from that is I've effectively been doing research on the obesity aspect for uh, you know, 40 years. And ultimately, you know, this is my journey where I came across uh, the problems of eating by the food pyramid. I sort of say that um, you know, I tried to do that. I had a healthy eating lifestyle if you go by that food pyramid for many years. Yeah. And sure, stuck in a bit of chocolate because you know, a little bit might hurt. Uh, but I had major weight issues for a long time. And I also had uh, diabetes or pre, pre-diabetes, high yeah. blood pressure. And then I had a, um, a cancer uh, 17 years ago. Wow. And it made me obviously rethink all of that and go, hang on, I think I'm supposed to be doing the right thing, and yet I'm getting sicker. And uh, the the flow on as time went on as I started looking at the perils of sugar, and uh, and then as uh, I realised it's not just sugar, it becomes the whole eating uh, process. If we start doing the opposite of that, which is... uh, eating real food rather than processed food, you end up with a definition of, you know, it's a tragedy we've actually got to call real food, real food. Mm. It should actually just be food. So if you actually eat food, (laughs) um, that by definition is low in sugar, low in refined carbohydrate and has a higher amount of healthy fat. It's just eating fresh, local and seasonal food and um, when you define it, it doesn't come in a package, it doesn't come in a truck, doesn't have long food miles. And um, I like Karen Zinn, uh, a comment from, you know, a quote from, she's a dietitian in New Zealand, uh, empty pantry, full fridge. Um, so right. when you look at that definition of real food um, and you start looking at eating towards nu- nutritional value rather than calories, um, surprise, surprise, the health improves. And I was my own N equals one experiment. Uh, extrapolated that across uh, family and then my surgical team and they started seeing amazing results in everyone's health. Um, I don't apologise to my surgical team because they've actually all improved in their health. And, <laughs> Do they uh, want an apology? <laughs> oh, yeah, they occasionally remind me that um, I've started them on that journey. Yeah. But uh, we're a good team and uh, it's been a, um, you know, the flow on from that is several years ago I started explaining to my patients that sugar in the amount that we're having is, uh, you know, dare I say the word, toxic. And that's when my problems, I suppose, started when I uh, started creating waves in the hospital system. 
of the, the hospital food, um, and I'll say it, I think uh, as a concept, hospital food is crap and it's killing my patients. Mm. And I'll say that because the example of food that we give to patients in hospital is less than optimal, and I'm sure it doesn't kill them in hospital, or not that I'm aware of, but over a long period of time it sets a poor example. And the, you know, the major example I use here is that if you've got diabetes, the current hospital guidelines are that you're supposed to have two desserts per day. Yeah. Um, and that's a New South Wales hospital food guideline policy, which has been wow. duplicated around Australia and particularly in, in Tasmania. Wow. So if you who, think about it. Who sets that? No, no, but that's the hospital food guidelines for patients. Uh, and you're supposed to have uh, recommendations of two desserts per day plus um, uh, biscuits for morning tea and afternoon tea and uh, one to two energy uh, foods, which include uh, uh, muffins, uh, potato chips, and um, uh, energy bars. Wow. So I've, I've pointed this out to the hospital system, the hospital food industry, and um, you know, all I do is take the data and take the information from their guidelines. And quite clearly, if you've got uh, an inability to handle sugar in, uh, in your diet, which is what diabetes is, we shouldn't be encouraging patients in hospital to have significant amounts of it, mm. which just push their blood glucose control uh, way out and creates uh, problems. So, unfortunately, I, you know, I, I point out these blatantly obvious flaws in the system, and that's created uh, waves. And in my situation, the hospital. Uh, Dietitians uh, started reporting me to uh, the medical board. But I can't believe that any dietitian would support those sort of guidelines. Indeed, I would have thought they would have been throwing their hair, um, hands up in the air and tearing their hair out of those. I mean, the, I, it, I'm, I'm, bam, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm bamboozled by the acceptance of those. I do want to ask a question, though, about if you, going back to your childhood, how did you lose the weight? Was it purely exercise? I had a shocking diet as a teenager. I had my four litres of ice cream per week. Um, I was raiding everyone's fridges. I was completely carb-loaded. And I had that growth spurt. I was exercising, literally, until the cows came came home. Right. And, you know, I was um, probably what they call the the toffee towards the end of my teenage years, you know, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Right. Quite clearly, I was metabolically inflamed. Um, my wife, who still loves me, knew me back then, and uh, oh, really? I had this uh, beetroot face all the time. I was you know, plethoric and uh, running around, um, but that was, that was um, in some respect, uh, somewhat crazy and uncontrolled days. Um, any of your listeners who had a uh, parent dies uh, when you're a child or a teenager. Go through a fairly angry phase, and um, so part of that was uh, my nutrition wasn't great, and uh, my partying wasn't good either. Mm. But I was still a medical student. I've got to thank Belinda for um, getting me back on the straight and narrow when I was eighteen. Right. So not that I was, you know, but yeah, they were just angry days. But you know, along the way, you, you set up your eating habits for life mm. in that uh, time frame. And this, uh, this is, I guess, what's happening. You know, you can see it in Australia now with the kids coming through. Twenty um, percent. What is it? Twenty percent obese. Uh, and increasing. Uh, yeah. That figure. Fifty percent uh, overweight. Certainly, 
certainly at 40 to 50% now overweight. Mm. And there's a population, we've now got two-thirds of the population that are overweight or obese. Mm. So therefore, if you're normal weight, you're actually a minority group now. Wow. And that's um, and it's an interesting way to start thinking about it. So if you hear um, normal weight people are uh, you know, getting uh, almost discriminated against because uh, you just... I hear about that in the schoolyards now, that the the normal weight child is um, uh, copying a bit of flack for being too skinny. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah, really. And that's, uh, I've got um, colleagues, kids that have uh, copped a bit of uh, flack uh, for that uh, whole situation. Yeah. And that's that's what happens in minority groups, you cop a bit more discrimination. It just happens to be that the normal weight kids are copying a bit more now than the. the average uh, child in the schoolyard. Mm. I think these are interesting times. Oh, interesting is a word. Well, so when you were talking about your pre-diabetes and hypertension, what era was this? How old were you then? Um, oh, late 30s. Late 30s. So, so the dietary um, uh, indiscretions throughout your younger years had set you up for this over a period of time. What about familial aspects? Well, no, my, my father's skinny as a rake, and um, the, there wasn't any major health issue apart from my mum uh, dying from cancer. Yeah. So the, the problem I, I sort of see here is that if our guidelines are flawed right at the beginning, then you have people who are actually trying to do the right thing, and yet they are going to struggle with uh, their weight. Mm. I come back to the smoking issue. There's so much information out there nowadays about smoking and the perils of it that if you want to smoke now, then you've made a conscious decision to do so. If you want to eat well, then there's so much confusion out there that you can't, you're going to struggle to make that decision. Mm, mm. I mean, there's no question that putting the right fuel in the car is going to make the car run more efficiently. But the question is, you know, which fuel is it? And that's where all of this information, and I actually call it misinformation and at times disinformation, um, is creating uh, problems for the community. And even if you go down the path, and this is part of an area I'm exploring at the moment, if you want to go down the path of eating well and getting good quality fresh produce into you, I'm actually looking at our nutrition of our soil, uh, which is interesting because We've lost um, 30% of the organic matter in our topsoil in the last 10 years and 80% in the last 100 years, and that's where our nutrients come from out of the soil. So if you actually, if you try and get, you know, the nutrition of our soil is then reflected in the nutrition of our food, and then that's reflected in that nutrition and our health. And I think this is a major environmental disaster in the making. Mm that we're actually losing the nutrients and the minerals out of our soil. So we're adding fertiliser to our agricultural land, and which is making things grow faster, but without the minerals in them. Yeah. whole new area of exploration that we need to be considering if we're looking at longevity of our health. So it's not just we've got a whole agricultural sector which is producing quantity of food but not actually looking as much at quality mm. and certainly not getting remunerated as much for it. Yeah, that's right. I was um, I was just exploring in another podcast recently that um, I, th- I think it's weird that it is accepted um, by 
every, let's call them authorities, but it's accepted by all the authorities that to improve the yield of animals, you need to feed them a certain a th certain supplementation program, if you like. For instance, dairy cows, they've got it fine-tuned. It's going to cost you between 9 and $11 a day per cow um, to actually give them this nutritional supplementation for a, an optimum yield of milk. Um, we're talking about um, agricultural land for plants and then we, it's very well accepted, for instance, that avocados need certain minerals to fruit. Australia is being a, a very old continent. What I think is where the disparity comes in is it is not accepted that to get the maximum yield out of us for our productivity in 21st century, it is not accepted that we have the right foods and even judicial supplementation where required um, um, to get the to keep us on the straight and narrow. It, there's this, as you say, it's not just misinformation, it's actually disinformation, which is a really interesting point. So who's running that? Is that is that industry? Is that our sweet spot that's such a a researched area now to take advantage of? As Stephen Fry um, so eloquently put about his uh, almost sexual um, interaction with, um, what was it, the cake mix that his mother used to make and him licking the bowl? <laughs> we, um, we're starting to pay the price for our manipulation of our agricultural practices. I think that's the, the, the summary of that. Yeah. As to where it stems from and where it goes, I'm fascinated as to why we've gotten ourselves into the predicament, and certainly, you know, of, of our health practices and, <clears throat> excuse me, and where um, and why it's being defended as such. So I've, I've given that some thought because clearly I keep coming up against obstructions when I'm trying to talk about the current science and the current outcomes and try and work out why it's been defended so strongly. And it's sort of a layered effect. Um, and the first is that if you have generational um, education, then people come to believe things. So if you're being taught by your educators and their, your, their educators have been taught by educators before that, and they've all taught the one thing, then all of a sudden you believe it. Yep. And, you'll, and so we talk about the um, low-fat, high-carb uh, concept, that's been around for 40 or 50 years. That's been, uh, that's been the educational paradigm. And once you've educated that, you can't, it's very hard to get out of it. That becomes a doctrine. It becomes a religious belief in some respect. And then <clears throat> when that's challenged, you will defend that paradigm you know, almost to the death. Mm. If you then... Um, challenge that, then that becomes a matter of major inconvenience. And as a society, we quite, as individuals, we like convenience. You know, changing things is inconvenient. And we're educated along the pathway of what I call read, repeat, reward. So if you read something and you repeat it, then you're going to reward it and it's not much trouble. So that's where a lot of our dietary guidelines have been sort of just kept on, kept, uh, you know, uh, keeping on. If you challenge that, then that becomes an inconvenient process. So if I read something and then I challenge it, I create um, um, consternation from those that I've challenged. Mm. And most people are, you know, if you've got a belief and you develop that paradigm, then if someone challenges it, the very first thing you're going to do is defend it. Uh, I throw into that then with a layer of bureaucracy. I don't know if you've heard of the Peter Principle. Um, but the Peter Principle in 
things that in society and particularly bureaucracy, uh, people rise to the level of incompetence. Right. And once you can't, you can't get promoted beyond that. And I realize this is a bit of a harsh comment, on, um, but as a society, we might have well-meaning people that move up there in these bureaucratic channels. But I honestly think it gets to a point where they get challenged and they can't, you know, they'll defend the paradigm yeah. uh, and they're working at a level which is, you know, at their capacity. And I, I'm quite forgiving about all this because I've had, otherwise you just get angry. Yeah. And I sort of, well, hang on, why are you defending this situation when I'm trying to actually be constructive and give you, a, you know, current evidence? And this isn't just um, at a dietary aspect, it's also in my situation, I think, at a, um, a medical board level, that they can only act upon information they're given. And that information, you know, if it's come from biased and vested interests, um, then they'll act upon it without actually because it's more convenient to act upon the evidence that's given to you. Oh, absolutely. Rather than it is to say, okay, the evidence given to me is, you know, may in fact be wrong. You know, so then to digress, that's what's happened, I think, in the medical board situation. I've tried pointing out to them that the information being supplied to them, whether or not it's from dietitians or from members of the food industry, is completely biased. And it should be, you know, accepted that it's biased and then, you know, as a result, pretty well thrown out. Um, that's largely fallen on deaf ears, um, but um, within the medical board. But the Senate inquiry uh, has seen that there's been problems in the evidence submitted. I didn't mean to become a test case for looking into the jurisdiction in Australia, but as a result of uh, my case was used because it's almost Monty Python-esque. Yeah. You know, here's a surgeon trying to provide, advise his patients to lose weight and eat healthy. And yet, um, it's not quite in line with the dietary guidelines, and certainly not the hospital food guidelines, which I think, you know, as I stated earlier, are crazy. Um, and yet, uh, I've ended up in that situation of uh, supposedly being silenced. But talking about things in general terms today is you know, clearly not giving individual nutritional advice. So you know, that's why we're talking in generalisations. But when we're seeing the undoing of these guidelines, even from very well-run um, research like the Sydney Diet Heart Study, showing us that there was really no benefit from these polyunsaturated um, or high intake of polyunsaturated oils from plant sources. When you're getting this sort of research coming through and it's research and even when it's home turf stuff, and we know that our dietary guidelines are failing us. Surely it's kind of like if you know your car's not stopping, you should really check the brakes. Why, why is there this resistance to saying, hey, guys, we need to go back and look at something because something's gone wrong, something's broken? Well, there's, there's people and institutions that have based their careers on this. And it's a big, big ask to admit that you're wrong. And, you know, that's, you know, I think there's, and I'll say a bit of you know, personal ego and institutional ego in the, in that scenario. Right. There's often, you know, massive dollars involved in this um, at a research level. Um, when you admit that you're wrong, it costs you, it costs you something in the process. Yeah. I, um, I used to be the cake judge at the hospital, you know, to put things in perspective. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll admit I've made a mistake. Sorry, guys. Sorry, everyone. Um, and um, uh, when you start, um, I, you know, I was also in, uh, involved in a knee replacement recall, mm. a knee replacement that had a very long history. Yeah. 
Uh, and there was a bad batch of that um, for about 18 months. No, no, no surgeon in the world knew about it. Mm. And yet admitting that, uh, you know, that a bad batch had gone in cost my knee practice for a couple of years, not that I did anything wrong. So when you admit that there's wow. a mistake there, um, I never stopped operating, but I, you know, I knew that my knee replacement um, uh, patients you know, that dropped off for a couple of years is back to normal now. Yeah. But there is a price to pay for admitting that you're wrong, and it's perceived. But here, this would involve a major back down from uh, this, um, the Dietitians Association of Australia, uh, from uh, Heart Foundation, Diabetes Australia, to actually admit um, that they've you know, been not giving the ideal advice. Now, that also involves the Cancer Council, uh, Menzies Institute, and these are major institutions in our society that would actually have to admit that actually you've been giving the wrong advice. Yeah. But that's my criticism of them, that uh, man up, you know, say that we, there are other options and choices available for people. And saying that they are dangerous is... I think now negligent. So that's why you know, part of it I get myself into trouble is pointing out to these institutions that they can do better by providing up-to-date and appropriate advice. And low-carb healthy fat in diabetes clearly has the role to improve outcome. And the complications of diabetes are completely avoidable, preventable and avoidable, with a lower-carbohydrate lifestyle. And to say otherwise from institutions is just frankly wrong. And I think uh, as time goes on, they're exposing themselves to a potential class action. Um, LCHF gets called a fad diet. I've got to completely agree it is a fad diet. It's food against diabetes. And um, you know, that's just to throw them straight back at, at the situation. Mm. And as you said, the Sydney Heart Study, you know, that um, that is research which has been reviewed, the original data, and then seen to uh, to be flawed in follow-up. I, I have major concerns with nutritional, uh, I'll put it in inverted commas, research, uh, because I think it's been completely prone to bias for decades, and which really means a bit of an unraveling of the scientific method. You know the scientific method, which is which is Test. come up with a... Yeah. Well, you come up with an observation, you you make an observation and you come up with a hypothesis, you test it, you retest it, and then if you think there's um, an outcome there, you will then implement it. But every single layer of science and research in nutrition is prone to bias. There's the bias of um, the initial investigator, you know, you come along with the concept, so you want to try and, you know, you've made an observation which is biased by your environment in the first place. Then there's design bias in the way you set the trial up. Uh, there's funding bias of uh, who's effectively funding that that, pro- that process. Mm. Then there's observer bias where the people involved in the trial, it's very hard to double-blind um, the situation, particularly in nutrition. It's pretty hard to convince patients they're actually eating something when they're not. Mm. <clears throat> and then you end up with... Um, uh, Editorial bias, once the paper is presented to different journals because one journal will accept it and there's many journals which in the nutrition field which are funded by the food industry themselves and therefore they will publish articles which are obviously pro their situation. And um, now I'll open up that uh, story down the track mm. uh, because that's a whole new story we're about to um, 
release some information on. Right. And then you've got readership bias because if I'm not interested uh, in that yes. topic, I'm not going to read it. So yeah, yeah. The, the, and therefore, if I'm doing a, you know researching some other topic, I'll probably ignore LCHF if, I'm, if it's not in, actually interesting. You know, it's not in my under the radar in my radar field. So, as a result of nutritional science and research, I'm just you know looking back, I, I struggle to make any interpretation of it, and therefore, most of the work that I've been doing is looking at it from a biochemical aspect. You know, going back to the cellular level, going back to the the chemistry of fructose and glucose and the polyunsaturated oils and because um, uh, what we ate 10, 20, 30 years ago uh, is just prone to error. And yet people and our guidelines are just you know, driven by this sort of information which has been collated in a biased fashion with uh, lobby groups having major uh, input into it. Is is one of the great problems with our current dietary guidelines, would you agree that one of them is that they don't incorporate our level of convenience in, in our current lifestyle, that everything must be convenience? I won't ride to the shop or walk to the shop or run to the shop. I'll take the car, even though it's, you know, 500, 800 metres away. Um you know, I'll do the shop at the supermarket, but I'll pass as close as I can so that I can walk the trolley there. You know, and it's the great it's the great challenge is to try and get the closest car park. It's a it's our mindset. Um, everything is based on convenience. Uh, we have computers running our lives now, so our virtual world is within a box that we're looking at. The other thing that where I want to go though is it part of it, even if we do want to try and eat healthy. Even if we want to eat, let's say, more salmon. I'd love to find a salmon 50, 80 years ago that ate soy. So are we sort of our own enemy in in that we want to do these things that are supposedly good for us? The intake of fish, the intake of fish oil, even supplements. And then we actually create a strain on the natural resource that provides that. So is it really that man's the problem, (laughs) I guess? Um, yeah, like how do you address this sort of stuff? Oh, you moved to Tasmania, but we don't don't want too many of you inside <laughs> of coming down here. Uh, but you know, quite <laughs> seriously on that note, I'm completely with you. I mean, that's we used to live in Sydney, and so I actually say people um, uh, exist on the mainland, and we live in Tasmania. Mm. Um, I'm Tassie pride now. I actually think that um, we have gone over the edge of the um, the cliff mm. as lemmings. And I think that what I'm talking about and encouraging people to consider as a choice is um, to you know, adopt a, a healthier eating lifestyle and, that, and it's not just how you eat, it's how you live and exercise and move and interact. But as I think it's really hard, even if you think you want to eat healthy, to actually find that food. So I think uh, there's a great movie, uh, Pixar movie called Wally. Yes. Uh, which I've watched again as an adult. Love and it. Realized yes. that, That's right. It's uh, a serious we've, message. We've, cricked, we've gone over the edge. And what I'd like to think is that my children and grandchildren uh, are going to be armed with the information to make the choices they want. Uh, I just gave a, a talk to one of the political parties uh, recently about the role of where Tasmania can fit into that equation. 
I do think that in Tasmania we have a potential oasis um, here on the planet. Uh, with a couple of minor tweaks, we can be fossil fuel free for our electricity production. We have arable land. Uh, we have temperate climate, uh, even though it's a bit cooler than Sydney. And um, we have the ability to uh, become self-sufficient. And part of that is looking after our farmland, our topsoil. And uh, actually, there's a, um, a great believer in uh, uh, cows actually restoring organic matter to our topsoil. Uh-huh. The fact that the cows are being accused of um, um, methane gases and uh, causing global warming is, is a nonsense. It's Another a, yeah, one of those compared myths. to other things, yeah. Oh, no, even on the number crunch, the um, uh, uh, sheep produce more methane per kilo oh. than a cow. Oh, really? And the, there's about the same number of ruminants, cows, sheep, um, goats, yep. uh, bison, buffalo on the planet as it was 100 years ago. Mm. Those numbers haven't really changed. It's the way they've been farmed and grazed. It probably has. And um, and I, I've got to admit, I, I think it's crazy that you know in the US that they uh, uh, a lot of their um, cereal and uh, grain production is actually for feeding cattle and cows mm. and, and feedlots. But you know, if we can actually restore our cattle back onto uh, the pastures and the grasslands, they eat that grass, which is actually dragging carbon dioxide out of the, out of the atmosphere, and they convert that uh, into uh, organic matter. And um, I mean, I just took a little video on the weekend. It made it seem strange. I actually turned over a cow paddy just to look underneath at all the worms and everything yeah. that was actually coming out of it, purely because of this this argument that we can restore organic matter to our topsoil, and it's not done by tilling and ploughing the soil or adding fertilisers. It's actually by using ruminants hmm. and um, putting that material back. So I think we need to really look at that, and I think Tasmania we can do that. It's, it's getting nutrients back into the soil. Hmm. How we do that across the, the agricultural lands of ta- Australia, um, which you know, as you've said, have been uh, you know ancient lands, which actually don't have a lot of mineral content in it anyway. Uh, that's a big tricky matter. So, where are we heading? I think you know, as it's, unless we have a dramatic turnaround in our food production and the quality of it, not the quantity, as a society, we're going to struggle with modern disease. Hmm. Uh, or a term I heard recently, I quite like it, is that we we now have food disease on the planet, and that's you know, that is a product of convenience. But then you know we're all we all prefer to do that rather than grow vegetables in our backyards. And there is the opportunity to turn our our backyards into vegetable plots. Our uh, our streetscape can change with major changes in council um, um, decisions. And there are some, you know, small streets around Australia that are, you know, instead of putting, uh, you know, um, dry grass down the the side there, you turn them into little vegetable plots Mm. in community areas. And that's a a very big holistic comment, but it requires actually everyone to get off their, um, almost said that other word, off their backsides and um, start making a difference and contributing back into the community. So we're actually not just convenient, it's also selfish. Yeah, but it's it's not that hard. We actually do it. Um, my father-in-law just thought, oh, hang it. <laughs> and he won an award <laughs> for doing <laughs> so. It was really cool. And then what we've got is this. It's not huge. It's just a tiny little sort of plot out the front, but it's a community garden and he gets joy out of it. 
Um, and our neighbours reap the rewards of these beautiful, beautiful tomatoes. Way too many chilies, like organic soil. So we, you know, we really look after it. Um, I guess the only thing we can't control is that it is on the nature strip, and so therefore any car that goes past. Thankfully, we're in a cul-de-sac, but any car that goes past, of course, you know, there's sort of those issues of, of fuel things. But hey, what do you do? Well, well the majority of us aren't living on the um, on the main road. Yeah, well, that's true, and we're breathing them anyway, so that's sort of mm. like well. And again, it's apart from uh, you know being healthy for us, it's healthy for the soul, mm. and there is one of the most common features of people who live over the age of 80 is that they garden. Yeah, so the blue actually, zones. You know, uh, blue, like, blue zones is another whole topic. Yeah. Um, in the, but it, it's not, you know, I talk about the blue zones being not uh, what they eat, but it's what they don't eat, yeah. those blue zones. Yeah. You know, avoid sugar, processed carbohydrates, and, and the polyunsaturated oils, but most, you know, as importantly, they have a deep spiritual connection as well, yeah. the community spirit. And they move. They don't necessarily exercise, but they move. So gardening is just this, you know, I'll go down and I'll get some spinach, I'll go down and I'll get some, you know, spring onions or whatever, you know. Um, just that movement, just that tent, tending of the the garden tends the soul as well. Um, Gary, I, I do want to go back to a, a, it was something that you mentioned before about this status quo. Um, and it, I think I'm pretty sure it was Einstein who actually said it, but there's this quote, great spirits have always encountered, encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. Now, every great surgeon, we know the Charlie Tios of the world, they get lambasted. Semmelweis, lambasted, and yet eventually it becomes, oh yeah, that's common practice, folic acid, lambasted. It took a generation of Jeeps, orthodox GPs to lobby the government with regards to lead levels in mines like Mount Isa. And they were, you know, basically thrown out for a whole generation until it happened. And then it was like, oh yes, we know about that. Where's the tipping point of acceptance? Um, there's a deep sigh at the beginning of before I <laughs> started this answer, <laughs> I, uh, as we talked about research, I struggle with the, the, the findings of nutritional research and because of where, I'll say, funding bias and funding interpretations and implementation. What we've done is we've gone to the public. You know, the public are not stupid. Mm. They know that walking down the street you can observe around you that the current food guidelines don't work and the advice we're doing as a society doesn't work. So rather than waiting for governments to change their decisions and advice because they're under the influence of lobbyists, and I'm openly cynic about that, cynical, and rather than waiting for um, the health education to change because, again, textbooks have been largely written by food industry and the ongoing education of doctors is largely from the pharmaceutical industry. But again, with major dollars involved in that, I think the answer to this equation is in the public. And social media plays a major role in that. Yeah. In that, um, you know, on social media, like my auntie um, went low-carb, healthy fat, and she lost a heap of weight, felt better, and came off all these medications and reversed her diabetes. That's a far more powerful message within a small, you know, that family unit than people talking about what happened in some double-blind, poorly controlled study funded by 
industry. Yeah. So if we talk about that, I actually think the answer going forward is actually the public because the multiple N equals one studies are out there. This person does that and they improve and they improve and they improve. Now, there's a thing called, um, uh, and you talked about what the tipping point is, and there's an uh, ecological term called committed sardines. I don't know if you've heard about that. No. But committed, a, a school of fish, uh, and we talk about sardines yep. here, can turn with a blink, turn yeah. 180 degrees. Yes. But a, a school of sardines, you know, if it reaches, you know, compare it to the size of a sperm whale, a sperm whale to turn 180 degrees takes around about three or four minutes. Mm. So I can't do it quickly, whereas a school of sardines can turn on the blink of an you know, eyelid. Mm. And the number that are required to turn that school of sardines has been researched, and it's about 3%. Oh. It's not 30%, it's not 40%, it's not 50%, it's not a majority. It's an about idea. 3% can turn the concept around because at any point in time in school of sardines there's some fish on the outside that are swimming in the opposite direction a bit more alert to danger and once you're alerted a certain number then you can turn the whole lot and I think that you know, myself others you know you guys are all you know, part of that group of committed sardines early adopters and as a result of that <laughs> um, making a difference because of multiple N equals one studies mm. Uh, I know um, uh, a couple of guys who are podcasting, and their aim is each for each person to raise the awareness with two others. And if you keep doing that, the multiplication effect of that is um, uh, you know, that's the, that's the way forward. Yeah. So I've got to digress for a second. I've just got two kangaroos just outside my study window. Here oh, how cool is that? That <laughs> sounds really cool. <laughs> Grazing on the non-vegetable portion of the garden, so that's okay. <laughs> so, Gary, with regards to things like change and convenience, um, you know, as you know, if I'm thinking here about this cold, windy, wet Sydney morning, and and yet there's a necessity to move, and I'm sitting here right now on my backside, and I need to move, and and yet it's so warm and cosy. And when you're talking about the learned convenience and the learned behaviours, physical behaviours, not less, let alone dietary, of obese people and diabetics, how do you institute change? How do you get them to move? I think it's nutrition one, movement two, uh, rather than... Uh, I think this is a flow-on from the, the 1977 Life Unit campaign that we've started convincing ourselves everyone who's overweight, the, the norm, get up and move campaign, uh, it's primarily a movement issue. Mm. Uh, I think food drives behaviour far more than we think. Um, I, what, what I've come to learn is that there's you know, the chemistry of food, particularly fructose, um, actually drives behaviour to make us hungry, eat more, uh, Fructose in nature comes in fruit, and possums will strip a fruit tree bare um, mm. at the end of summer, beginning of autumn, when those, um, so it, they can deliberately turn that into fat for, for winter hibernation. It's yep. a very primitive but most important Which we um, don't do. Reflex. <laughs> no, because like, we have mm. the ability to get fat or put, store fat for winter hibernation every day. 
But when we expose the fructose, it will actually drive a certain amount of behaviour. Uh, again, the survival instinct, just mm. as long as, as much as we need water. Yeah. And then you're actually distracted by the market, and the marketing of food is such that it's full of bright colours and it's telling you terms like natural and it's good for you and healthy. So when in fact anything in a packet probably isn't. So you're distracted by the market and then you've got the cultural issues and you know, we talk about you know, going to a party or going to a celebration or we've got morning tea and afternoon tea. It's not so it's a so break, it's actually always associated with food. Yeah. So it's very, very hard for people to actually um change all of that when you've got so many distractions around it. Where does movement come into that? Well, I think that's number two, and that requires this thing called motivation. Um, and a lot of my patients have arthritis and can't actually move as much as they'd, they'd like to. So I, I focus on what they can do, which is you know focus on what you're putting in your mouth, start making conscious decisions. Um, <clears throat> I'm a bit more of a... I'm moved away from the, you know, the 30 minutes a day of aerobic exercise to... Um, core exercises and high intensity work. Yeah, and but that, that may be my own personal bias because I don't have a lot of time in life, so I'll do that for a few minutes a day rather than being able to find the time to get half an hour. So this is the hit training, high intensity. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I, I do that, but again, that's not for everyone. But again, it's a matter of keeping moving as much as you can, yeah. and it does require motivation. But to try and do all of this by yourself is very hard. Um, Belinda came up with a term that, uh, that most people require SAM when they're addressing all of this lifestyle stuff. And SAM still, uh, stands for you know, support, accountability, and motivation. So when you're actually trying to embark on a, a change in health, change in weight, getting diabetes under control, it's very hard to try and do it by yourself because of the distracting things around you, but how food drives behaviour in the environment and the market. So one of the things we encourage people is to not do it alone. You know, drag the rest of your family in, um, uh, and you do it as a family. Do mm. it with the support of friends, mm. and that comes back to the community. And it's much easier to, to do low carb, healthy fat now than it was five years ago, or even you know, when I started talking about sugar several years ago, I thought I'd lost the plot. But now if you sort of say, look, I've cut back on sugar, you're not ostracised. No, that's group. right. So again, the only way that's occurred is actually um, because of community message, um, social media, because you know you don't really see governments spending a lot of money saying, you know, here's, you know give up sugar, or you know, leading by introducing a sugar tax, because again, that's a uh, you know, it's bad dollars for government to be um, discouraging the sugar industry. Mm. So uh, I think it comes back to you know support, accountability, motivation, and as a community, we're doing that now better than we were before. And there's a growing awareness of that we're doing something wrong and that we can do better. In fact, I use that hashtag: we can do better. Yeah. And hashtag: we can't wait. One last question. When we're talking about low-carb, healthy-fat diets, we're talking about changing our types of nutritional intakes. Can you still have too much of a good thing? Like, you, you know, you talk about fructose being the driver of hunger, but once hunger is set in, it's a hard thing to change. So even when you try to, to you know, start eating salads, they're not eating a little bowl. They're eating a massive bowl. 
Um, and then they're saying, I still need more. So I'm going to eat not one chicken leg or something. I'm going to eat the chicken, <laughs> you know? So how, what do you find are the best ways to change the volume of intake? Um, education, um, number one, I uh, used uh, a fist size, you know, as an example. I say to people, you know, if you've got a fist sized um, uh, amount on your plate of nutrient-dense food, that's all you need. <clears throat> it's hard early on to actually make those changes. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm moving towards this concept of eating nutrient for nutrient value rather than quantity. Right. And if you find the nutrients, then you'll in fact find the satiety. You'll you'll feel full. Right. <clears throat> I think one of our big problems in society at the moment is you eat one pizza, you've got a truckload of calories, but you don't have any nutrients. So yeah. your body says, actually, I better go and eat a second pizza yeah. now. Yeah. And so I think part of our volume on a plate is driven by habit. Part of it's driven by the fact that it's actually nutrient poor. Uh, well, I think you know, it's often described this whole concept of healthy eating, low-carb healthy, a bit like, a bit like um, playing chess. The moves in chess are actually very simple, you know, how each piece moves. Mm. But once you start delving into it, it just gets more and more complex. Mm. Yep. And so... But it's actually okay to tell people you can't, you don't, you don't have to get it sorted out in one day. I certainly didn't. I've learned this over several years. And I'm still learning. I mean, I'm just this morning reading some other stuff. Like, That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And if I go to meetings and I'm catching up with people who are, um, you know, world leaders on this and I learn from them every time. So don't, I got accused of a meeting recently. I, I think he's the laid back low carver. And the reason being is that some people said, oh, how much carbohydrates do you have? How much fat do you have? How much protein? So actually, I've got no idea. Mm. I just know that what I do eat is very low in sugar. There's virtually no processed carbohydrate in there. And I'm eating to satiety what my body tells me. Uh, I'll wake up and I go, I need a bit of protein here, so I'll have some you know, eggs and uh, and leftover meat from last night. And some days I'll go, actually, I think I've got a bit more fat here, so I'll have a bit more nuts and and uh, cheese and, and some dairy in there. Hmm. So I think we need to, because people think about it as diets and they think they get really um, hardcore about it, which is fine. And I think you need to do that, that sometimes to sort of really develop an interest in, in how much you're having. But once you relax into it, say it's just a lifestyle and just going to stop eating so much processed food, and having the strength and the willpower when, when you're in, in a community, in a group, when they sort of say, have a bit of cake or... I'll say, well, I mean, it, my life's easy at the moment. Nobody offers me cake apart from to tease me. So um, I, I literally walk into a room in the hospitals now and people hide their cakes and, and junk food. I think, well, it's good, I'm winning. I don't have to say anything anymore. Mm. For want of being a little bit controversial, uh, and we talk about them as treats, and I actually think they're moments of substance abuse. Mm. And that we, because we're driven to it, and I, but the moment you understand how you're driven towards that sugar and that behaviour, then you start being able to have having some control. And it's a bit like tobacco. Once you have the information, then you can start making personal decisions. Mm. So I still have some chocolate, you know, be ninety percent, and uh, I understand that I like the taste of it, but I'm actually enjoying that. It's very low in sugar. 
and you know we're not having truckloads of it. Mm. So it's okay to you know let um, your sweet bugs you know have you know, a hit from time to time. We just understand that it is it is that rather than having it for nutritional value. Um, you know, we, there are essential proteins that our body requires. There's essential fats that our body requires, but there is not a single biochemical pathway in the body that requires ingested glucose or fructose. We don't we have it. to have carbohydrate in our diet. So it's there in nature in surplus to allow us to get fat for winter hibernation. Mm. It's there as an extra fuel source. Um, a carbohydrate in your diet is a luxury item. Mm. And um, uh, that, sure, we've got a convenient staple food supply based on cereals, grains, sugar, soy, you know, which make our life easier and we can crop and take nutrients out of our soil for that. But we uh, need to understand that as a society, we're starting to pay the price for it. Yeah. Gary, on a last question, just some quick resources. If people want change, where do they go to get it? I have a website uh, that we're running still called nofructose.com and uh, that has some overview stuff. It's certainly got um, many of my lectures that I give. Um, Belinda, because of the politics of medical boards, has taken over my Facebook page, and so it's called Belinda Fetke, uh, no fructose. Um, but uh, I'm still tweeting away on uh, Gary Fetke, fructose no. And I'm still staying loud on this topic because I have to. Um, once you see the results of low-carb, healthy fat living for yourself and for others, and particularly in diabetes management, once you see the results, you can't unsee them. Mm. And it's too important. It is. Too. And the sooner we get to the 3% of the committed sardines out there, um, we're going to make a difference for those that choose it. And I understand it's going to be difficult to actually eat well for everyone on the planet. But if you actually understand that you've got a choice and there's an option, then you can start making those decisions. And it's not going to be for everyone. But I think not letting people know about it, that, that's the, the, the thing I can't forgive mm. uh, the system for. Mm. Words well said, and, and I've got to say hardly fought for. So, Dr. Gary Fetke, thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today and sharing your passion um, and your knowledge, and indeed, I would say your care for your patients, um, even though they might not like, like it in the short term, it's your, their ultimate care that you're thinking of in the long term. So thanks very much for sharing your expertise with us today, and good luck for the future. Thanks, Andrew. It's been great chatting. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.